Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd Seminary. This podcast is dedicated to discussing issues related to scripture and theology. For more information, visit petergaiman.com. Welcome back to another episode on the podcast, and today we're going to do something a little bit different. We've done it once before, and that's just answer a couple questions, and so it'll be a little more abbreviated, but I wanted to answer two questions which come up periodically, and they will be, one, what does being cut off mean in the Old Testament, and two, how are we to understand the New Testament's teaching on divorce and remarriage? So one, what does it mean to be cut off? And two, how are we to understand marriage and divorce and then by implication remarriage in the New Testament? So let's start off with talking about what it means to be cut off in the Old Testament. Now, there are a variety of theories as to what this could mean. There are about five of them. The first theory is that this could refer to a childlessness and premature death. So in other words, If you commit any of the acts which are stipulated as being an offense by which you are cut off, then childlessness and then a premature death could be the curse to follow. The second view would be that this is a death caused by God. So not just a premature death, but one that's struck down by the hand of God. The third view would be that this is capital punishment, which is administered by a human court. So in other words, God uses the government in Israel to affect the cutting off of the individuals in the Old Testament who are guilty of committing these offenses. Or on the other hand, uh, there are two other views. One, some have believed that this is a cessation of existence after death. So in other words, it's a complete annihilation that there's no life after death for these individuals. And then some have seen this as just a general proclamation of God's judgment. So when we think about what this phrase means, we could go through every single passage in detail and talk about it from that perspective, although that would take a lot longer. But instead, what I want to think about it in the perspective of what situations are in view for this cut off penalty. So if we look at just how this this phrase is used in the Old Testament, we see that the penalty of being cut off is enacted on those who fa- have a failure to practice circumcision in Genesis 17, 14. We also see that it is enacted upon those who fail to eat unleavened bread during the Passover in Exodus 12. We also see that those who engage in the illegal manufacturing of sacred anointing oil in Exodus 30 are threatened to be cut off. You also have Exodus 31, where those who violate the Sabbath are cut off. You have those who eat sacrificed food while ritually impure in Leviticus 7. They are cut off. Eating the fat of blood of a sacrifice, fat or blood of a sacrifice, I should say. In Leviticus 7, you also have them being noted as being cut off. You also have the slaughter sacrifice outside the tabernacle. Those individuals are cut off in in Leviticus 17. You have forbidden sexual practices in Leviticus 18 and 20. They are also cut off. 
child sacrifice in Leviticus 20, they are cut off. Necromancy, which is trying to divine the future by contact with the dead, they are called to be cut off in Leviticus 20. You have the worship by a defiled priest, Leviticus 22. Failure to observe the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 23. Uh, Failure to observe the Passover in Numbers 9. And then a defiant intentional sin in Numbers 15. And then a failure to purify oneself after contact with the dead in Numbers 19. So when I go through that list, uh, the goal, obviously, rather than going through in detail, is to show just the breadth of the nature of these offenses and to show that the cut-off penalty applies to a lot of situations. And when we observe some of the, some of the common themes one of the things that that's helpful to observe is that a lot of these offenses, it's not possible for others to actually observe them or know them. In other words, some of these can be done in secret and that no human beings outside of the offender would have that idea. So in other words, if somebody came in contact with a dead corpse I mean, not everyone's going to know that necessarily. And so if he fails to purify himself, you know, only God knows that. Only God and the individual. Uh, so that's that's a important consideration. And so when we think about that, uh, it's it should help us align our minds with what's the, the circumstances that are going on in these situations. The second thing is that in some of these passages, God himself says that he will be the one who cuts off the individual guilt the individual guilty party. So in Leviticus 20 verse 3 for example, it says that God himself will cut them off. And I think when we put these two ideas together, these observations, what we seem to come across with is that God is taking ultimate responsibility for the cutoff penalty being invoked and The fact that God alone is the one who's going to be able to know some of these offenses is important. Something else to keep in mind in Numbers 15, verse 31, what we see is that the reason an individual is cut off, according to verse 31, is because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. And that's the one who will be completely cut off. So in other words, he despised the word of God and he broke God's command. So when we put that together with understanding the motivation, understanding the possible circumstances, and understanding the role of God in the situation, I think it's best to understand the cut-off formula as some sort of divine curse. In other words, God himself is is claiming the authority and the, the judgment, the right of implementing that judgment. It doesn't belong to a human court or anything like that. But the individuals who rebel against God's gracious covenant, who in the words of Numbers 15.31, who reject the word of God, who despise it, those are the ones who are going to be put under this curse by God. So in other words, we could probably rephrase or paraphrase this this cut-off penalty as something like this. Because you are rebellious against your God and have broken his covenant, now then the curse which disobedience brings will belong to you and sometimes your family as well, depending on their involvement and whatnot. So it, it 
is involved with direct disobedience, not not a mistake. In other words, it's not just some sin of ignorance, which the person didn't know. This is some sort of flagrant disobedience. And also, uh, God is the one who enacts this judgment and ultimately brings that curse to bear on the people. So it's just a reminder that it's it's not necessarily a, a code word for capital punishment or anything like that. What seems to be in mind here is that this is a direct disobedience rebellion and God himself is saying, I will enact punishment against you, which will ultimately wind up in that individual's death. Uh, and so when we think about it from that perspective, I think we can see it as a general judgment of God uh, proclaiming that he's going to hold the guilty accountable, that nobody's going to escape uh, notice from under from under him. So when you read through the Old Testament, that's how I would take the cut-off uh, description. Now we shift gears a little bit to the second uh, question, which is very far removed from our prior discussion, and that's what does the Bible say about divorce and remarriage? So divorce is really, a, I mean, a non-issue in our culture as far as since the implementation of no-fault divorce, it's basically a, hey, whatever reason you want, even for no reason at all, you can get a divorce. But the Bible is actually much more strict on the issue of divorce, and we can see that through a variety of ways. Probably one of the, the best places to see that is in Matthew 19. And in Matthew 19, what we end up seeing is that the we have the Jews coming to Jesus to test him. The Pharisees show up in verse 3 and they ask him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus answers them by relying on the Old Testament. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And what he's doing there is he's quoting Genesis one twenty seven, which unquestionably uh, says that God is the one who creates male and female. God is the one who designs the sexes. He created those. And then Jesus continues and quotes Genesis 2.24 in verse 5 and says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So he's linking Genesis 2.24 which depicts marriage as a covenant bond, saying that man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Those are covenantal terms. And there's a special relationship that forms a new family unit where the old bond is dissolved and the new one takes that place. Now, in light of that, Jesus is linking Genesis 1 and 2 together and essentially saying that God's creational paradigm gives the major point that no longer do you have two individuals, but you have one flesh. And so Jesus's implication in verse six is therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. You know, in other words, there, there is not to be any separation. There is not to be any divorce. So then the Pharisees say, well, why then did Moses command us to give a divorce? And they're referring to Deuteronomy 24 at that point. And what Jesus points out to them is that Moses did not command it. He corrects the Pharisees here, which is always great. I love when Jesus corrects the Pharisees because these are the masters of the Old Testament, as it were. They, they know their Bibles forwards and backwards. But Jesus says, no, 
because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. So in other words, it wasn't a command. Moses didn't command anyone to get a divorce, but he allowed it because of the hardness of their hearts. In other words, divorce is not the intention of marriage. Divorce is never the intention of marriage. Divorce is not supposed to be an option. However, because of sin, the Old Testament allowed for divorce in certain situations. And as we'll find out too, I think the New Testament also allows for divorce in a few situations as well. But Jesus's main point is that divorce is not supposed to be the option. It's not supposed to be on the table, as it were. It's not, to put it in our cultural terms, there is no such thing as no-fault divorce for Christians. There's there's no way out. Once you get married, you're married. So Jesus goes on and says in verse 9, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, and there we see one of the exceptions, is if one of the partners commits sexual immorality, adultery, and marries another, they commit adultery. So in other words, Jesus says there is there's to be no divorce except on the basis of sexual immorality if, if a covenant partner is unfaithful with regard to that. Now, we think about that. So the Bible unquestionably talks about marriage as a permanent covenant early on in Genesis. We see that. And now in, in Matthew 19, when Jesus is expanding on that, he's, he's proclaiming the worth and value of marriage. And he says that divorce is not to be an option except in the case of sexual immorality. The disciples seem to understand and putting that in the background of the common debate that the Pharisees had amongst themselves, there were some in the camps that thought that divorce uh, should be allowed for any reason. And so they, that's part of the their trickery in trying to talk to Jesus about these things is because they're trying to trap Jesus into one camp so that he makes an enemy out of the other camp. And so when they ask this question, the disciples actually understand what Jesus is saying. So they come to the conclusion in verse 10, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. In other words, this seems like such a high standard. This this seems like it's actually better off if you don't get married. And so Jesus, sa Jesus says to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to the, those to whom it is given. In other words, not everyone can be single their whole life. Some people need to get married and this is the way God's designed life. This is how the propagation of humanity is assured because man and woman are designed to be compatible together. Now, when we think about this, uh, obviously Jesus raises the bar very high. And this is why even as our culture continues to disintegrate on a sexual level, uh, as far as our sexual norms and things like that, divorce becomes more and more commonplace uh, as far as an accepted practice, even, even among those in church, the, the true church Christians need to stand up and say that divorce is not to be an option, except as is defined by Jesus in the case of sexual immorality. Now, so with that in mind, I would say the one exception that Jesus gives for the dissolving of that lifelong permanence of the marriage bond is sexual infidelity in the marriage relationship. And I think that's clearly demonstrated in Matthew 19. And you can also see that same exception clause in Matthew 5, 32 as well. But there's another verse that Paul brings up in 1 Corinthians 7, where he expands on what the Lord has said. So in 1 Corinthians 7, 
he gives instruction on the marriage on marriage. And in verse 10, he says to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. In other words, the Lord is the one who gave this instruction that the wife should not separate from her husband at the end of verse 11. And then in verse 11 or at the end of verse 10 and in 11, he says, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. The husband should not divorce his wife. So in other words, in other words, that's what Jesus very clearly taught that man and woman should be together for lifelong relationship. That is what marriage is all about. Um, now, Jesus did give the exception of sexual infidelity, and Paul doesn't mention that here, but he goes on to expand on that this in verse 12 and says, to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. In other words, I'm giving you something that Jesus didn't talk about, but obviously we know Paul is speaking for Christ as his ambassador and as his apostle. And he says, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. So in other words, you're going to run into situations, especially where where new believers are being saved, where they have a spouse who is not a Christian. And so Paul says very clearly here that if the unbeliever is okay with living with them, then there should not be a divorce. And you can see the temptation here might be for some Christians that, hey, I want a spouse who loves the Lord, who's believing. I should I should divorce my unbelieving spouse and go for a believing spouse. Well, Paul says, no, that's not okay. Marriage is still really important and that bond should not be dissolved unless, unless the unbeliever wants out. And then we get to verse 15 of chapter seven. If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such a case, the brother or sister is not enslaved God has called you to peace. So in other words, if the unbeliever leaves the relationship, if they want out uh, a case of abandonment, and you could describe it in that way, uh, then that that's not on you. In other words, that you, you were willing to be in the relationship if the unbeliever wanted. And so when the unbeliever leaves the marriage, that is also a legitimate divorce. And the, uh, the believer is then qualified to be remarried. So in the cases where divorce has biblically occurred in whether it be for sexual infidelity or whether a unbelieving spouse has left, the implication is is that remarriage is possible because that has been a divorce according to the exceptions. But that's the that's the key thought is that divorce is always to be an exception, never the rule. And when we think about this, I do think even when you read through the New Testament and Jesus' teaching on love and forgiveness and all those things, that divorce should always be the last option. There should always be an attempt to reconcile, even even in situations where there's marital infidelity. Uh, you know, those are super painful situations, but you always, uh, I think, I can't say always, but there does seem to be in many cases opportunities where God is glorified through the forgiveness and reconciliation reconciliation that takes place between spouses. And I've seen that uh, firsthand uh, in people that I've known and also heard stories where that is that is the case. And, and I think that where possible, that should be the, the case in those difficult situations. However, if that's not possible, if a spouse just, just has been... Um, just completely 
uh, mistreated and there's there's no possibility of reconciliation with regard to that, then there is a avenue of divorce for that marital bond. Now, let's think uh, just as far as big picture about divorce too. Obviously, we could go into a lot of issues. So I, if you have any questions about uh, divorce and specific situations, we could try to talk about those with application. But I think so- something that's very near and dear to me is is just that one, the church doesn't treat divorce as serious as it should. So there's a lot of there's a lot of churches that really just downplay divorce, don't talk about it. In fact, people can be going through unbiblical divorces in the church and the church doesn't even talk to or confront them. And that's just wrong. This is a very important issue. Uh, protecting the integrity of families and the marital bond is one of the primary goals of the church because it reflects, as we see in Ephesians 5, the relationship between Christ and the church. So we, as believers, need to protect the integrity of that marriage relationship and treat divorce as a serious issue because it breaks the bond, uh, breaks that picture of Christ and the church. Now, the other side of that, too, even though I say we need to treat divorce as a serious issue, we should also not treat divorce as an unpardonable sin. So in other words, we even though we should recognize that is serious, that doesn't mean if somebody's had a divorce that now all of a sudden they are a second class Christian in the church or anything like that. No, if they have confessed and forsaken their sin, maybe they had a divorce in their early 20s and now they're in their mid 30s. They're not a second class Christian. They're a sinful Christian who has, or I should say a sinning Christian who has confessed and forsaken that sin and is trying to live rightly before the Lord. There's a difference between that and somebody who's stuck in their ways and saying, you know what, my divorce was fine. You know, it just wasn't working out for us, you know, things like that. No, there's a difference in attitude there. So even though divorce should be treated seriously, we shouldn't treat it as an unpardonable sin in the sense where, hey, you've had a divorce now, you can't hang out with anybody in the church or anything like that. No. That's that's another problem that we see in churches occasionally. Although, if we were going to identify a more serious problem, it would likely be the fact that the church doesn't d- treat divorce seriously at all in many regards. So anyway, I know there's a lot more we could get into with the issue of divorce, but I hope that that succinctly gives a conclusion as to how to think through the issue. If you have any questions or comments on any of these issues, feel free to email me at peter at petergaiman.com. If you want more information on the podcast or about me, visit petergaiman.com. For more information on Shepherd Seminary, visit shepherds.edu. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.